Today's show is brought to you by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. The content industry is constantly evolving. To keep up, you need a tool that's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everybody on the same page. Airtable has been used by companies like Time Magazine, Group 9 Media, and BuzzFeed Motion Pictures. It lets you manage your entire creative process from ideation to content creation. Airtable empowers you to do your work your way. You can try it today. Just head to Airtable.com slash Recode Media to receive $50 in free credits. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here at Vox Media headquarters on a beautiful day in New York City. Today, Recode Media listeners, is a special day because you get two podcasts for the price of one which is $0. Lucky you. Um, we have two very cool guests here. I wanted to make sure you got to hear both of them in the same podcast. First, I talked to Jessica Pressler, the great New York Magazine writer. She has an amazing story you may have read about this uh, New York grifter socialite slash fraud. Um, it's amazing. You will really enjoy the, the story. If you haven't read it, go read it. And we had a great conversation. That runs about half an hour. Uh, and then after that, I talked to Ken Aletta, the great New Yorker writer, media critic. He's got a new book out about the ad business called Frenemies. We talked about that. It's a conversation about Google and ad tech. It's also a conversation about how Ronan Farrow got the Harvey Weinstein story, how Ken tried to get that years ago and didn't, how Ken helped bring Ronan Farrow to the New Yorker. That's a very cool story as well. They're all coming up. They're all free. Enjoy. One thing we ask of you before we get started, tell someone else about this show. And while you're at it, go to Apple Podcast and rate and review us. If you want to spend that time criticizing Kara Swisher or Kara Fisher, as you called her, random person, uh, you can do that. It's not the best use of your time. Kara will not read those comments. But if you want to praise this podcast in Apple Podcast, go ahead and do that. That'd be awesome. Thank you. Okay, here is my interview with Jessica Pressler. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm here with Jessica Pressler, staff writer slash contributing editor at New York Magazine. Jessica has written many amazing stories. She's written one in particular that we're going to spend a bunch of time talking about. We don't often devote an entire podcast to a single story. Wow. Not to a single story, but we want to focus on it. If for some reason you haven't read this story, what's the title of the story, Jessica? You don't know. It's, it's about <laughs> no, the grifter. It's a, yes, it's about the grifter. I think it's, I think it's maybe she had so much money she just lost track of it is the headline on the story. I'm, I'm assuming that right. most Recode Media listeners have already read this story. If for some reason you're listening to this podcast, you have not read this story, pause this podcast right now. Jessica will wait with me. Mm-hmm. Um, we will wait for you to read it. It's free. You spend a little bit of time. It's a good long read, right? It's pretty long. About 20 minutes of reading I, I, time. I'd give it 20 minutes. I'd yeah. give it Take half an hour. Come back, rejoin us. We'll start talking about it. Ready? Okay. Now we're back with Jessica Presser. We're still here with Jessica Presser to talk about your amazing grifter story. This popped up about a week ago on the internets. Mm-hmm. I was at the Code Conference, so I couldn't get to it for days, right. and my Twitter feed was just full of people praising this piece. So oh, congratulations! So you, had, nice. you had a much tweeted about story. I, it was much tweeted. So <laughs> everyone has now listened, has now read the story. We don't need to summarize what the story is about. Everyone in the world. I want to talk about the construction of the story, how you got to it. When I was reading, I'm like, oh. I, I heard of the story before, and as you, I was going through it, I'm like, well, obviously she, this this woman, her what's her name, Anna Delvey, Anna slash what's her ex, what's her real name, uh, Anna Sorokin, Anna Sorokin. Obviously, I, I, there's a bunch of grifters. Maybe I had read about this when she was arraigned, and then as I was doing research for this, I was actually doing some googling. There was a Vanity Fair piece about the same case 
that came out about a month ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, yeah, there was an essay sort of. I was going to ask you this later, but what 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 happens when you've been working on this for many many months, and then Vanity Fair has a first person story about the exact same thing you're writing about? I mean, you sort of like tear your hair and rend your garments a little bit, but you know, all things considered, they're like pretty different. Did pieces. you know it was coming? Uh, no, I didn't know it was coming. I, I had reached out to her, and it's a this risky is the, thing. This to, is Rachel yeah. Williams, Vanity Fair photo editor. Yeah, Writing exactly. a first-person piece about being scammed by the right. director you're writing yeah. about. I mean, it's her. I had reached out to her. It's a risky thing to reach out to somebody at a competing publication about this story. Um, so I wasn't surprised entirely, um, and I certainly couldn't fault her for doing that. She had a, yeah. a crazy experience, and, and her piece is really interesting. It's a great piece. So you I was like, I, I guess well. I won't write that much about the Morocco piece, <laughs> was, was kind of my feeling about it. But. So let's walk us back. So where does a piece like this show up on your radar? Because you do a lot of um, profiles of famous people. Uh, there's a great... Uh, Alec Baldwin piece I was rereading. Uh, there was a great VG piece that you did a few years ago mm-hmm. that got resurfaced after his death recently. That's kind of your stock and trade, right? Or one of the things you do a lot of is meet a famous person, have lunch with them, hang out with them, profile them. This is a different thing. This is a different thing. Um, and this sort of came up because I had done, I, mean, I do a lot of profiles. It's my job and it's enjoyable for the most part. Um, but I do like like long narrative stories yeah. a lot a lot more um not more but you know a lot <laughs> and they they take a lot of time and effort um so i don't do like a ton of them but um this came up because a few years ago i did a story about um a group of former strippers at scores um who were arrested for uh, stealing their clients' credit cards and like racking up enormous debt. Oh, did you get a National Magazine Award for this one? I didn't get that, no. Because Were you nominated for <laughs> I it? was nominated. Okay, well, that's pretty close. Somebody else got it who really deserved it, so it's it's totally fine. I'm not bitter. Um, but, and also, you know, they don't really give National Magazine Awards for stripper articles, but. If, if I was voting for that, I would have voted. Thank you. I appreciate um, that. But this is strippers so, of scores ripping off their clients. Strippers of scores ripping off their clients. Which is this, this astonishing thing is it doesn't happen. All the time. I well, I think it, it does happen all the yeah, time. Yeah. I mean, there, there but they were caught. They were caught. They were caught, and it was more like a crime ring, and yeah. it was a whole thing. And um, so I was, you know, really, I really enjoyed doing that story. I love the people. I was really interested in the fact that there are these kind of women of New York, like, kind of like lady scam artist grifters, that there's this whole underworld of them. There, There's all different kinds. Um, and... I was I reached out to this like really wonderful New York Post photographer who had taken a picture of one of those women, this guy Steve Hirsch, and he took like an amazing photo of of one of the women from that story. And um, I was asking him like, "Do you know other ones?" Because I was thinking about maybe doing a book project on it. Um, like, have you seen any like new interesting fun things lately? And other other stripper scammers, or just other scammers. Just other scammers. Other, other, other lady underworld. Scammers. <laughs> yeah, other underworld figures. interesting people from this kind of because uh, we had had conversations like in the courthouse. He's like a post photographer who hangs out at the courthouse. So he sees the underworld. He sees everybody, and it's amazing. And um, he was like, "Oh, you should check out this woman, Anna Sorokin," and I. Googled it and it was actually, you know, it was in the post. It's in the story that it was in the post, like in October when she was arranged. So it wasn't you seeing in the post, it was a post photographer saying, You should look at this story. You should look at this thing that you totally missed that happened in October. Um, So I looked it up. I wrote to Anna in prison, um, got 
then she called me and, and I met with her a few times and, and it kind of evolved from there. So how long sort of soup to nuts did it take to put this thing together? I think I must have met her in f- either February or March, but I was doing a lot of other things in between. So pretty quick. Yeah, it was pretty fast. deeply reported piece. Right. Well, I, I mean, I had this deadline. So You're pointing <laughs> to your belly. Yeah. Baby so I, and again, stipulated that I'm not totally myself right now because I'm like about to have a baby. So, um, so yeah, I had a, a deadline. I couldn't like linger on it too long. Can but. we can we talk a little bit more about sort of how you assemble a piece like this? It looks to me, reading it, like there's sort of three main sources for it. Just by some people you quote, you've got the the concierge at, at the hotel, you've got the trainer, and then you've got Anna. Um, did you, were you going into this thinking, I need one, I need Anna, or I need someone to sort of explain the story for me? Otherwise, I can't do it, or were you, could there be a write-around? How are you thinking about what you need to assemble a story like this? Um, well, uh, there's a lot more sources than sure. that, for starters, because everything is sort of, like, triangulated and, and, and checked against other people. Right, um, especially you when you're talking to a scam see. artist, right? Especially when you're talking to somebody who's, like, a professional liar. You, you definitely need to, like, kind of check out everything that they say against um, other things. And, um, and you know, when you have people talking about where they work and you have to kind of check, you know, with that place and, and all of that stuff. So there there's a, a lot of different people in it. And I guess those are kind of main characters uh-huh. in the story. Um, and I didn't really set out to get them. As soon as I met Neff, I knew that Neff Neff's was the concierge. like— Neff is the concierge and that she was going to be like kind of the entry point into the story because she is all of us, you know, <laughs> like meeting this person and entering this world. Tease, tease that out, all of us, meaning, meaning she's the reader or she's a New York person? I think, I mean, she's a surrogate for the reader right. and that she, like, is experiencing this world for the first time and, and seeing it. And you, you kind of want to see it through her eyes a little bit. Um, and, and she's also just a delightful person and really fun and, and hilarious and uh, and was really quotable and fun to talk to. Yeah, as a, as a side note, but it kind of not a side note, I think it's kind of one of the themes of your piece, right? Like. Like there's different strata of New York and Neff represents a really important one, which is young person with artistic slash professional ambitions who doesn't have money um, but is around money and people have a lot more money than her and her her job is little to service people with a lot of money. Right. But she's in a – I think in – where was she? Where did she live? A oh, Crown Heights. Crown Heights, Heights right? Yeah. So, and, and you just flick at it, and you it helps if you live in New York and you get the geographic right. references, but you sort of get it. There's an upstairs-downstairs thing. Right. And a lot of New York is sort of greased by those interactions, right? People who have money and don't have time work with people who have more time than money, and, and they have other things those people want, and they, they sort of play back and forth. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and, and we're all kind of like in service in some ways to Especially these Especially if you're in journalism. I know. Let's, talk, let's not get into names. <laughs> and on that media slash New York theme, I mean, you can have a grifter in any situation where people have money, right? But it strikes me that there is a little bit of a media connection here that the, a lot of people she's interacting with are in New York glossy magazine slash fashion publication in a world which I don't know that well, but my sense of it is, like a lot of other New York media, is that you have a lot of people in that world who either have money and that's how they can afford to get not paid very much or they don't have money but they have to be comfortable being around people with money and it seems like Anna sort of comes in and exploits a lot of that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, 
yeah. (laughs) There's also, like, we're in this moment where um, a lot of people have these, like, very loose, weird job descriptions, like, or, you know, they're they're creative directors, they're futurists. Yeah, and, and you don't really know what that means. You don't really know how they're getting paid. You don't... It's they're not really doing a thing, you know, like it's a, a real like trade. So it, and yeah, and you don't really know anybody's background, which I feel like is a, a, a important point. You that think that's different now makes. than 10, 20, 40, 50 years ago? I wasn't alive 50 years ago. So I can't say, but I do think uh, I don't know. I don't. I know. do that math all the time in my head when I'm meeting people sort of socially and trying to figure out, well, you live there, your apartment looks like this, or or you seem to have this job, how are you paying for it? Right. Right? And it's weird. New York's super frank and everyone is upfront about everything, but they still don't really want to talk about where money comes from and how they make their money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The Observer had an amazing article like a few years ago that I think about all the time. It was like the secretly rich of New York. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, wait, how do you have that apartment? Like, how do you? And nobody really knows. And, and you don't want yeah. to ask and be rude. So so I think we're in like an extreme moment of that for sure because of the wealth inequality and because there's just like obscenely rich people and they have children and they have, you know, there's a ton of trust fund kids running around for, with fortunes from right. God knows what. Um and you, you sort of that that percentage sort of increases, right? Because if, as anyone knows, New York gets more and more expensive. And if you could afford to live in the East Village, then you then you ended up moving to Bushwick, and now Bushwick has luxury condos, and and that starts getting pushed. And you get filled in by people who are paying, whose parents are paying all cash, right, right, right. right to put, exactly. And they live in China or Brazil or wherever they live. Yeah, or and what? Yeah, and they're like a Coke or something yeah. like that. And you're like, oh, oh, all right, yeah. Is this sort of a through line for a lot of your stuff, or is it just one of the things you write about because you're writing about sort New York? Of has become that, and it, and it is because I'm writing a lot about New York, and I work in New York Magazine, and that is kind of like in some ways, the story of New York at this moment. I don't know if that's exciting or depressing or both. I mean, either. I, I go back and forth. <laughs> um, when you have a story like this that's yeah. enjoyable, then it's exciting. Um, sometimes you're like, you know, when you're profiling like a bunch of Wall Street guys, you're like, wow, this is like the same story. Yeah. Like, that's one of the tricks of billions. I'm hoping to bring in uh, Brian Koppelman to talk about it, like how you can make a wealth porn story like that that's also has human beings in it and also has like nuance of how you feel about money. Right. It's a cool trick. I have more questions for you about your awesome grifter story, which I'm just going to call it awesome grifter story since neither of us can remember the title. (laughs) Was it hard to get Anna to talk? It seems like she's quite eager to talk. Um, It wasn't hard to get her to to speak to me and, and meet with me. It was hard to get her to tell me all the things that I wanted to know, um, which is, you know, are you crazy? Is this uh-huh. like, you know, like what, how long has this been going on? Like, you know, we've, it was a lot of dancing around the fact that she, you know, what had committed a crime in a weird way. Um, because, you know, first of all, it's, it's an open case. It's an open court case. She hasn't been sentenced right. yet, yet or anything like that. She's uh, actually in the middle of plea bargaining. So we couldn't really like, she couldn't really even if she wanted to admit guilt, she couldn't She really. basically is, though, at least in the quotes you've got there, where she's saying, what was the line? Like, uh, if, if I was trying to scam, where she's sort of, def- she's indignant that she's being accused of sort of petty stuff. 
She said, well, no, I have much broader ambitions. Right. <laughs> it's very hard to get around the fact that there are forged wire transfer confirmations from Deutsche Bank. That is, um, and, and Deutsche Bank, you know, testified that these are for so mm-hmm. so she there is guilt for something um however i think that there's maybe a lot of other stuff that happened beforehand um and and you know going back years back uh, to germany you talk about that back, back to germany she's been scamming people for a long time i think so do you have yeah. a sense and you, you, you kind of i'm not sure that you hit this head on of what what her i mean i know she's trying to create at some point this like foundation slash real estate project that's sort of her, her in her narrative but if you're a regular person you're watching someone essentially bilk people out of thousands of dollars at a time individually hotels restaurants whatever it is you're trying to figure out well what's your goal here i could see like stealing something but then you'd want to run away right but she was living in new york for years doing this what did what did she think she was doing I mean, I think she really thought it was going to happen. And this is one of the things about the story that's most intriguing to me. Um, She really thought that this foundation was going to happen. Like, this was a real plan she had assembled. And and we talked about this a lot. She's like, and I had assembled a really good team. Like, and she had assembled a really good team. So, like, for what she was trying to do. And... uh, you know, if if she had gotten that $35 million loan, this could be happening. And this was, she was going to create a... I'm sure you've read the story by now, but uh, she was going to create a sort of a art slash gallery slash yeah, hotel. Yeah, it was a, a thing that does exist, like a social club type yeah. thing, which, by the way, a lot of people were raising money for very similar social, I mean, not quite similar social clubs, but that they exist. The core club exists. The wing exists. Like, these are places that have art and they have events. I actually, like, wrote a story about private clubs recently for Departures magazine. Like, there's a ton of them. And they're spreading up all over the city. Huge buildings. Like, people kind of pay membership fees to get... Neue House. Neue House, exactly. Um, It's it's a thing. So, it's it's a real thing, and it's a thing that people raise venture capital money for and, and, you know, raise millions of dollars. And broadly, right, the whole sort of fake it till you make it, right? We celebrate that a lot of times in Silicon Valley. I have an idea. I put it on a, on a napkin. Now, theoretically, I'm also a coder, or at least I know who that coder is, and I probably am a white guy who dropped out of Stanford or Cal. Um, there's some things that she doesn't fit that pattern for, but the idea sure. of, like, I'm going to make a thing out of thin air and you don't believe me, but once it's built and people value it at X numbers of millions or billions of dollars, it's a thing. Right. And I'm and I'm given a pass for everything that happened up until that point. Right. And and she might not have been a white guy, but she was like a foreign person and that um, you know, an indeterminately sort of foreign person. And that is also a, a character that we see a lot in New York. Like I had one guy say to me, you know, one guy that she, you know, met with about doing food and beverage stuff who was like, if I had, like, if I met with every Russian oligarch who wanted to start a social club, I'd never leave the office. Like, it happens all the time. Like, so it, it's, uh, so she thought it was going to happen. So the scamming up and, like, going to Morocco and not paying for it and going to a fancy dinner and asking someone else to pay for it because your credit card has mysteriously declined. In her mind, she's not getting a free meal or getting a free trip to Morocco. These are just things she's doing in route to eventual success. Yeah, and I believe that she thought that she would pay all those people back. And I maybe if she had gotten that loan um, from a Fortress or whatever, uh, then she would have. 
Yeah. I mean, there's a more benign, there's a benign so version where you start with money and you go and do a ridiculous app, a ridiculous project, and you live in a world where everyone sort of facilitates that. And even people who can see that it's clearly a bad idea because we don't need another hundredth sh- photo sharing app will sort of go, all right. And by the way, maybe they'll even take a consulting fee from you. I used to work for Steve Forbes who ran for president twice and there was no way he was going to win. I mean, it's harder to say now in a Trump era, but there was clearly not going to be elected president because he had no charisma. Um, but people, <laughs> I'm sure, I mean, I know he spent tens of millions of dollars on those campaigns. Again, there's no one did anything wrong. Right. But they allowed him to continue with his fantasy. Sure, yeah, The exactly. difference, right, it was his money. Well, the difference was he probably paid his bills like on time. Yeah. He wasn't like, I'm going to promise you a wire transfer that doesn't come right. and stuff like that. Uh, um, but yeah, um, yeah, for sure. There's like, so there are people and, and to extent like, you know, maybe we've all done this, like who enable this dream because it could happen because it happens America. All, all the time. America. And by the way, there's an interesting side note here where, where Anna is born in Russia in 1991, right? So mm-hmm. the wall is coming down and Russian capitalism is flourishing and then she moved to Germany and you don't go that much into it, but you can sort of imagine this person sort of recreating themselves multiple times and going sure. to New York and saying, all right, I can do whatever the fuck I want here. And it's easier to do it than in Russia and Germany. Right. I mean, I think that, I think that uh, yeah, she definitely like recreated herself, um, you know, in London and in Paris um, and in Berlin before here. But this had to have been the easiest place because there were the city where nobody, you know, cares about your lineage. Like I think in, in Europe, they sort of care about that stuff. They care about right. background. They uh, less so perhaps than they used to for sure. But, you know, obviously like in England, that's something that people care about. There's right. And we're big suckers for accents, yeah, right? Exactly. If you have an English accent, you're automatically smarter. Exactly. Yeah. My dad has an English accent. He gets, <laughs> gets away with a lot for that. Um, and you've got a great line in there about you've, you've, you quote some tech entrepreneurs worth millions of dollars. Yeah, I think she was part of the, the art collecting family in Germany. You name the name and then you parenthesize. No such family. Well, exists. I thought I, I believe when he said that I was like, "Oh, there, there must you be nodded, a thing." And, like, and then I looked and I was like, about. "Wait, what?" <laughs> that's, that's the that's the nice that's the story in one nutshell. And then the actual construction of the story, that the way you wrote it, where you start with the concierge and you sort of are pulling back the camera as it goes, and you meet more people who are being scammed, but you're not spelling out that it's a scam. Eventually, the reader realizes this is. I mean, the headline gives it away, but the reader realizes these people are being scammed, even though the people who are telling you this aren't sure at the time they're being scammed. And then you get to Anna at the very end. Is that something you thought about building from the get-go? Does an editor help you sort of think of telling the story that way? It just sort of came out that way. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't totally plan it. Um, it's just like I, I think like I had to sort of say what happened before I got into like her personality. You had to like understand what had happened before I got to her. Um, so there almost wasn't like room for her as a character. You like, didn't want to start with her in jail because you wanted to tell right. the story of how she got there right, first. Right, exactly. Yeah, so, so that just kind of came out that way. <laughs> so obviously cinematic. Um, are you thinking I need to be pitching this to Hollywood while I'm writing it? I need to finish it and then pitch it. I'm presumably other people are pitching. I mean, how does a, how does that part of the process work? I'm finding out now. Yeah. Um, I, well, I've, I've I've done this before. I, I sort of figured that somebody would be interested in, in potentially buying it, um, and and that's yeah. Do you go into a story <laughs> thinking that? I, I know some writers like make a harder to do now because there's no, it's harder to just do this work, right? But think, I only want to do stuff that I think I can eventually option. 
and turn it into a screenplay? Um, it's definitely an interest of mine, um, but I've never written a screenplay before. So, it, so right. I'm sort of writing like things that I hope other talented people can make screenplays of. Let's let's talk about stuff that isn't a grifter story. I mentioned profiles. You write profiles for New York Magazine, GQ, L, Glossy Magazines. I'm a, I'm I'm fascinated by the Glossy Magazine celebrity profile. I've talked to Chuck Klosterman about it, Jason Gay about it. So if you've heard those interviews, oh, Jason Gay is so good. I love he's it. so good. You're going to hear more <laughs> of this. Um, you, you said you like that work generally. It can be really fun. Yeah, it can be like really enjoyable. Like I, I sort of do it as a palate cleanser between doing like these kind of more like complex, heavily reported, ambitious pieces. Like there's something very refreshing about, you know, just only being given two hours at the Chateau Marmont with somebody or just like going to, you know, a bartending lesson with a celebrity, which is the thing that I've done. It's like, it's, it can be really fun. Um, and that it seems like part of the trick is you get lunch with Javier Bardem, right? Or <laughs> you get to do an activity yeah, you with Channing Tatum. Yeah, you for more than lunch. And you want but more, yeah. but you, that's <laughs> often what you get, right? You right. have one interview with them. Hopefully it's an interesting place. Like the least good one is I talk to them during the photo shoot for the oh, story. Yeah, yeah. But then the trick often seems like sort of teasing that out into a full-fledged profile without allowing that that's all you got. Yeah, it's a little bit like of a crazy thing to do to like assess somebody's whole character based on this like super limited amount of time that you have. Um, so I've, I've actually done a lot less of them lately, partly for that reason because you just get less and less access, and then it's it's not that fun because like it feels really weird to like paint a whole picture of somebody that you've only spent like three hours with. Right. Like anybody can be like a pleasant person in three hours. You really have no idea who it is and stuff like that. Um, and uh, so, I, yeah, I've been doing it a bit less. How often do you feel like they're hyper aware of the process and their role and they're already an actor and they're acting in this interview and they know what they're doing and they know that I know what they're doing versus they're relatively open about it and you feel like you're having a closer to a real conversation. Well, it's sort of both, right? Like part of being an actor is 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 being able to like kind of fake that intimacy. So people are really charismatic and and you'll go to these like lunches or whatever and you'll be like, oh my God, I just had like an amazing experience. And then you get back and you look at your transcript and you're like, oh no, <laughs> this is total garbage. Like what have I done? Like this is nothing. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of like the bummer. I mean, that happens to me. I don't know if it happens to everybody. Um, but every once in a while you do like actually kind of genuinely connect with somebody. Yeah. But people are more and more, so much more aware of their own image like and of of creating their own image um with social media and everything like that i mean like if we're very like people are very aware of their packaging now and and uh and so it's that's made things a bit harder i think what do you think about people who who are ultra famous and don't do interviews i was just having this debate with kara swisher about this like i can't remember ever seeing a, a long form beyonce piece i can't remember seeing yeah. a beyonce q a I mean, whether it's Beyonce or anybody else, do you do you think they're hiding something, or they've figured out some way to exist without doing it, or there's nothing there, and that's why they don't do it? I mean, I feel like I'm like shooting myself in the foot by saying this, but I just respect that so much. Yeah. Like Kanye West had this great quote once. He's like, "Doing a magazine article, it's like it's like giving somebody else all your beats and letting them make the song," <laughs> and you're like. That's exactly what it's like, actually. I, 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 have a, <laughs> I have a version of that where I'm like, I don't really know why anybody talks to me. And I think, or, or if I can't figure out what the specific angle is that they're, they have, they're, I'm really confused. Yeah. Because yeah. I wouldn't talk to me. 
Right, right. I yeah, I fully respect people who don't want to participate in that. And I do think that like the only and best way to do it, unless you have to, unless you're an actor and you're promoting something, you have to do it. So like you're an actor and you have a big movie coming out and you have to do it and it's like part of your job. But like the only other reason to do it is if you really want your story told and you have like a close and you trust the person, the reporter, right. and, and you have like a relationship and you can like talk openly and, and you and you as a reporter get a ton of access to somebody and, and can go back to them multiple times and ask them questions and all that stuff. That's like the way to do it, I think. And what do you think about the idea of famous people using their own media, to, to whether it's Twitter, social media? You've got these things like the Player Tri- Tribune, which theoretically it's the athletes talking directly. Of course, they're being – they're using professional editors and writers to help them to help tell that story. But it's them saying, this is specifically the story I want to tell in this forum. Do you think we're going to see more of that? Do you think eventually that's unsatisfying for audiences and or the people who are putting that out? Because it doesn't seem like a real thing. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely unsatisfying, right? I mean, it's like... Well, for us. Well, some, yeah, some right? people are really good at it and have these incredibly, like... Um, fun, voluble, like, social media presences, and it's, like, super fun to follow them. But you're definitely not getting, like, the what's he really like, what's she really like, what's it like to be around that person. Like, that perspective is is really fun. Yeah, I just wonder if they're going to say, well, yeah, I understand that that upsets you, Jessica, that you don't get to write that story <laughs> or you don't get to read that story, Peter, that. But, <laughs> but I'm going to present this. And by the way, I'm no dummy. I know if I have pictures that are cool, like that, that I, and by the way, I have full control over the pictures, like that's going to satisfy plenty of people. Sure. Right? Yeah, or here's does. a 10 second clip and that's going to, and I know that you, some people would rather read a 4,000 word profile of me, but. It that. 100% does. I mean, look at the Kardashians. It's like they satisfy that need 100%. Like there, you're not going to get anything from a Kim Kardashian profile that she's in complete control of. Yeah. I also have a disagreement <laughs> with Kara. Kara and I have disagreements. Uh, she brought Kim Kardashian on stage for a whole extended interview a, a while back. Oh. And, you know, it's a half-hour interview, and I think there's probably five minutes there, right? Like Of actual and, substance. Yeah, and I yeah. think, by the way, Kim Kardashian's a fascinating figure who should be written about, probably just not interviewed directly. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think that, that sounds right. Now I have to go and look that interview up, though. I didn't yeah. realize you guys said that. That's amazing. Yeah, that's the other <laughs> thing. Like, it didn't make that much splash. Now I'm just shit-talking Kara, really. <laughs> Okay, so before I shit talk Kara anymore and get myself into more trouble, I, I like to shit talk her in person generally <laughs> instead of the podcast. Um, Jessica, this was great. Thank you for Thank coming. You. Thanks for having We've me. We've mentioned it before. You're super pregnant. You came all the way from Queens <laughs> to the bottom of Manhattan for this. We're very appreciative. Um, this is such a great story. I just wanted to make sure that we had something that our listeners could consume while it was still fresh. Thank you, guys. So thank, thank you for you doing for, this. for liking it so much. I appreciate um, it. Enjoy your time off because I hope you get time off. Yes. Okay, good. Um, I look forward to reading all your future stories cool. and talking to you more in the future. Okay, cool. Thanks, Jessica. Definitely, thanks. Thanks to Jessica again for coming on the podcast. Uh, we're not done. We've got Canaletta coming up in just a couple seconds. First, we'd like you to hear from a sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Mac Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. I'm wearing the socks right now. That's why I seem so comfortable. If you saw me at Recode Media, you would have seen those socks flashing too. They're a bright blue pair. People are impressed with those. So not only are they comfortable, not only do they look great, they smell great. They're made of naturally antimicrobial fiber that actually eliminates odor. 
They're easy to buy. Go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. I buy them myself. That is the best endorsement I can give you. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. You will like these things if for some reason you don't like them. Unbelievable. You can hang on to them. Tell Mac Weldon they will send you your money back. You get 20% off with the promo code RECODE at MacWeldon.com. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. Today's show was brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion and food production will need to grow by 70%. What if artificial intelligence could help? Farmers are already using it to help increase crop yields. Watson and the IBM Cloud provide access to weather data and analyze satellite imagery to help them monitor soil moisture levels and reduce water waste. So, as the population grows, more food can be put on tables. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash smart. This is still Recode Media. I am still Peter Kafka. I am still here in New York City. I'm here with Ken Aletta from The New Yorker. Thanks, Ken Aletta, New Yorker media mogul profiler for Mo- stopping oh, by. I thought you were going to stop at mogul. Oh, yeah, you, you're mogul. You, you're mogul adjacent, right? <laughs> Whatever. You've been talking to these guys for years. You're, 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 you're part of the circle at this point. I would say. Whatever. Whatever. I like we're, we're off to a good start. You are here to specifically to talk about Frenemies, your new book, The Epic Disruption of the Ad Business and Everything Else. Not a small topic when you add the everything else. Yeah. No, the, the argument in the book is that advertising is the ATM machine for all media, including digital media. You've been writing about media for how long for The New Yorker? Well, for The New Yorker since 92, and before that I did a, a book on called Three Blind Mice, uh, which I started in 85, which came out in 91. So I've been writing about the media really since then. I think you are the best-known chronicler of the media and sort of the media mogul beat, uh, the, what the New York Times calls corporate media uh, these <laughs> days. Uh, this is the first time you focused really on advertising. It is. Yeah. I mean, I guess Google, right, is, is fundamentally an advertising company as well. And that yeah. was the book as well. The, the argument uh, was, uh, you know, the old Watergate adage, follow the money. And here I am writing about the media, including Google and Facebook. And if you look at Facebook, 97% of their revenues come from advertising, 90%, almost 90% for Google. And without advertising, there are no newspapers or television, much of television and magazines. So I said, let me follow the money and what's happening to advertising. And what I learned is that it's being disrupted just as newspapers and music and magazines were. There is this thing with people like you and me and other people who cover media. We tend to undercover the ad and really the money side of it, bizarrely, even though we're covering the business of it. Um, I think partly that's because it's been dry and sort of unchanging for a long time. I think partly, at least for me now, like on the tech side, the Google and Facebook side, this stuff is so arcane and so difficult to understand and so difficult to make understandable to a large audience that it's sort of easier to ignore it. That and and, and I think we who cover the media tend to want to write about media things and not about business things. Fair enough. Guilty as charged. Um, so when you went into this, you said, all right, I'm, I'm going to dig in. I'm going to not only learn really about how ads work, but how digital advertising works. What, what surprised you once you got in there? Well, uh, among the many surprises were uh, how disrupted the business really is um, and how people or institutions that were friends and allies and partners of, say, ad agencies have become their frenemies. And, and PR agencies are now becoming ad agencies as they have fewer newspapers to 
peddle their wares to. Uh, the New York Times, Vice Media, Vox Media, at your ad agencies, as well as platforms that they advertise on. Clients increasingly take stuff in-house to, to create their own in-house operations. So ad agencies have been disrupted. But then the other thing you find, uh, I mean, I knew some of this, but I didn't know it as, as acutely as I think I do now, that the real frenemy is the public. The public doesn't like those shitty ads, and they particularly don't like being interrupted on their mobile phones, which is a very personal device. Who gave you permission? Which gets into all kinds of privacy issues, which I try and address too. In the you you worked on the book for how long? Three years. Three years came, and so I've got a galley here that I probably got early in the year, early I don't know February ish, March ish. About that, yeah. Um, so you're you're chronicling this this big change over the last couple of years. And then March, April, Cambridge Analytica, the Facebook story, which had been boiling for a good year and a half, breaks open completely. At that point, are you like, oh, man, I got to go write another chapter for this book because everything I'm writing about is now even more relevant than before. But plus, I've got to update a lot of stuff. Well, I have have a fair amount in the book about about – Facebook, uh-huh. and, and I have Mark Zuckerberg saying it's crazy to yep. think that, um, and and then apologizing for that. Um, I actually am writing a book about change, and I think if you read the book, you you say that change is kind of normal. You have things like Martin Sorrell being let go from yes. WPP. He's a major character in my book. I'm able. I was able to put that in. Um, we'll jam that in, and and, and in the I have a, more about it in the in the ebook. That comes out simultaneously, but the, in the second edition of the book, there'll be more more about that. But essentially, even that, uh, Martin Sorrell's role in the world of advertising, whether he's there or not, is established. Thirty three years ago, he established the largest holding company, and how we operated and its values or failures is all part of the book. I've been doing this long enough that that I was had been asking for a while. When is the ad business going to get disrupted? Like you said, when when are we going to see what happened to the newspaper? papers and music happened to the ad business. Because for a long time, even though digital was be- had become a giant deal, the ad agencies were still doing business the same way they were always doing it. They're still buying ads the same way they're still doing it. By the way, this is still happening in TV. It has yet to be touched. But it seems like something tipped in the last year or so. What was what precipitated that, that tipping point? Well, I, I mean, I think a number of things. I don't think any one thing did. The mobile phone, the I- introduction of the iPhone in 07 is a huge... Um, a huge thing because as people increasingly use do most of their work and computer on the iPhone, an ad, it's a small screen. You can't do a 30-second ad on it. it. It eats up your battery life. You hate pre-rolls and banner ads. And, and so how do they get through to people is a huge question on, on that. Second thing is if you look at the growth of something like Netflix, coupled with things like HBO and Showtime, no ads. That's a huge thing. So people, uh, a younger generation particularly, are accustomed now not to be interrupted by ads. And, and creative people kind of love the idea of, of not having to write shows for, for, right. for breaks. So it's, it's harder, uh, in a lot of ways it's harder to reach people. There's a counterpoint that says, well, now that, that phone, by the way, makes it easier to track you than ever. We know more about where you're, what you're doing, where you're going. Right. Um, 
did the, but I was always waiting for the ad buyers, the PNGs, the world to go, wait a minute, wait, this whole idea that we're going to give you a dollar of advertising spend and you're going to tell us that half of it is, is waste, wasted is the old adage, um, and that's just the way we're going to do things. For years and years and years, they seem to go along with it. And again, only recently have you heard them saying, no, no, we're going to start actually really rethinking the way we do business. Lots of various um, terms for this, right. but 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 finally, they're now saying, "Wait, we're the ones spending the money. We want to be spent differently. We want more accountability for our dollars." Is there, is there again? Is there something that pushed any of these guys over the edge? I I, I mean, I think again, multiple things happen. I mean, including Facebook having you know not having accurate measurements of video watching and usage, uh, where they say, and and Procter and Gamble among others, as did Unilever, said, "Wait a second. I'm going to suspend my spending until you give me better data on this. And you guys have this wall garden, and you're not sharing the results. You don't allow Nielsen, for instance, or Comscore yeah. to, to measure your success. So that's one thing that certainly happened. The second thing is that clearly the, the client is saying, hey, wait a second. Is my ad really working? A, I'm spending more money for a smaller audience on television, and with all that clutter, all those ads, are people really paying attention? So what's my ROI? And by the way, I know that I'm not watching this stuff at home. I know I'm fast-forwarding through this stuff. Well, you know, according to Nielsen, 55% of right. the people who record a show on their PVR are skipping the ads. Right. I mean, for a while now, the only people who would tell you otherwise are people who are in the business of selling those ads. They say, no, no, people like the ads. We made them part of the content. It's a branded experience. And then but CBS, David Poltrack says the same number of people are watching CBS on all platforms yeah. multiple times over over a 30-day period as 10 years ago. But the same number are not watching ads. Because when a show is sold to Netflix or Amazon, there are no ads. Quite clearly goes away. You mentioned it just now, and, and you've got a, an excerpt. We're, we're taping this uh, a little bit in advance of when it's going to come out. But you've got an excerpt in The New Yorker today where you talk about the public sort of fight is becoming, a, 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 an, like you mentioned here, um, is, is more opposed to this stuff than ever before. In front of me. I wonder how you, what's the best way to quantify that, right? There was, a, there was a, a rash of news stories around Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, and if you walk up to someone on the street and say, how do you feel about Facebook? They might be more inclined to be more negative than they were in the past. Um, exactly why they feel negative might depend on who you're talking to, right? If you're talking to Ted Cruz, he's upset about diamond and silk, sugar and diamond and silk. I'm nodding. Whoever, right. whoever they are, right? Everyone's got a different critique of Facebook. Right, right. And if you ask them if privacy is important, they'll say yes, but their behavior doesn't indicate that privacy is important. Right. And by the way, they may not, they probably don't know that Instagram is owned by Facebook, that WhatsApp is owned by Facebook. So the members of Congress didn't. They certainly yeah. don't. And, and so I'm wondering if you really think the American public is sort of actively against digital advertising, modern advertising, the way that we think about it. Well, I think they're against a large number of the public is against being interrupted uh, and more so than are, are against the worry about privacy. But I think the privacy issue is bubbling up. You saw it in the members of Congress. Um, and it's not as intense as it is, say, in Western Europe where yeah. a new rule is just about to come into effect, which allows people to say you have to opt in rather than opt out, which is what everyone here wants in the advertising world. But I, I see it growing as an issue. That is growing as an issue. The other issue that's growing is the concern about duopolies, about the monopoly power of the Facebooks and the Googles and the Amazons. Again, it seems world. like the people who are concerned about that are people like 
my employer at Fox Media, right? It's a very, very narrow subset of the world that, that thinks about the duopoly and the problem that causes, you know, it's the people who listen to podcasts like this and, and read my coverage and your coverage. It seems like the broader public has no idea what we're talking about. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right, uh, broader public. But I think if you, if, you, if you asked, do you think the percentage of the public that is concerned about the power of these companies and the privacy issues that relate to these companies – that number is growing. I guess my counterpoint is is Amazon, right? Which which dominates commerce, um, has put out lots of lots of companies, uh, has put them under, right? Directly, um, you don't hear anyone other than Donald Trump going after them. It doesn't seem like that has any political resonance. People are begging Amazon to build a new headquarters there. Amazon then in, uh, creates a a listening device that you have to pay for to put in your room. I've gone out and bought five of these now. When it, when it came out, I said no one is going to buy a listening device a speaker that's actually a listening device for Jeff Bezos that you can put in your room. It turns out it's an enormously uh, successful It's a product. listening device that, that listens to a lot of things right. and, and retains uh, that data. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm sure there are people who say, I will never, ever put that thing in my house. And there's lots of other people, millions and millions, that yeah, yeah, that, that seems convenient. No, it, but at, is there a point at which Alexa concerns about that listening device called Alexa? Or Google and, and Apple all doing that. And and the data that these people have on you, and no one has better data than Amazon, which is now yep. getting in aggressively in the advertising business. Uh, is there a point at which the public says, hey, wait a second. How come you know that about me? And, you know, it, when you think about it, you go forward, you spin forward. What the advertiser... Advertising agencies and clients are saying the answer to the public being concerned about our interruptive ads, we have to give, give them targeted ads that give them something they want. We have to know more about them than ever before. Precisely. And so at what point do they say, how do you know that about me? There's a, there's a version of this you see all the time. I hear all the time anecdotally from both people like my dad and then people I know who cover technology saying, I think Google or Facebook, and they'll, they'll explain a conspiracy theory. They were able to figure out what I was doing even though I wasn't logged. And you say, well, yeah, actually they have cookies and they don't really understand that. They'll say, I think people I work with at Vox Media believe that, that Facebook is listening to their conversations. And this is a story that pops up every couple of months and right. Facebook has to bat it down. Um, people who are pretty sophisticated about technology believe that Facebook's actually listening to them via their phone and surfing up ads based on that. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a root of that. But think, think about the data. If you think about the data, yep. Google has your search history, what you've searched and read and, and, and dwelled on. Facebook has your friends and communication you have. But who has the best information? Amazon. Because Amazon knows what you've bought. Yep. And therefore what you're really Which is freaking out Google. Again, none of, and, and I think By Amazon... Way, half the people who do a search for a product don't do it on Google anymore. Right. They do it on Amazon. That's a big deal. And Amazon, I think, has tread lightly in advertising for that reason. They're concerned about customer reaction. Um, but all these guys, you know, again, you'll, you're seeing Facebook go through acts of contrition and we're going to do this and we're going to GDPR, we'll fix things. Um, but they're still fundamentally doing the same business. Um, last week we had Lior Cohen come in from YouTube to explain the new YouTube music app. And he's boasting about how the uh, YouTube and, and Google will know what you're doing where you're going, what kind of mood you're in, whether you're going on a plane or not, and they will serve you music based on that. And they're holding this up as a great idea. They're very proud of it. And I said something effective, aren't you worried about creeping people out? What do you oh, say? It doesn't, doesn't even occur to them. 
that this would be, you know, and of course you can opt out, et cetera. But it's, it's just built into their mindset that of course we want to know as much about you as possible. And in this case, we're not showing you an ad, we're just showing you a product that you'd like. But what you're getting to is that the reason that they are unconcerned about privacy is because they're concerned about their business. And they see the data they get from you as a lucrative vehicle for their business to grow. And at some point, do, do, are they compelled to say, hey, wait a second, we've got to worry about privacy. There's no, it's, we're looking at a seesaw here. As targeting data goes up, privacy goes down. As privacy goes up, targeted data goes down. You, the the Recode Media listener, have chosen to listen to this podcast. Thank you very much. We're going to deliver an untargeted ad to you right now. Please (laughs) stick around, listen up. We'll be back here with Canaletta. Today's show is brought to you by LinkedIn. Here is Vox Media's Nishat Kurwa to tell you about LinkedIn marketing solutions. When it comes to marketing your business, it's all about reaching the right audience at the right time. So if you want to target your customers where they're engaging every day and when they're ready to make a decision, LinkedIn can help. When you advertise on LinkedIn, you have the opportunity to build long-term relationships with your customers, relationships that often translate into high-quality leads, website traffic, and higher brand awareness. The first step, talking to the right audience. LinkedIn has the marketing tools to help you target your customers with precision, down to their job title, company name, and industry. Four out of five customers who are on LinkedIn are decision makers at their companies, so you're building relationships that really matter. To redeem a free $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, go to linkedin.com slash media. That's linkedin.com slash media for your free $100 ad credit. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, Recode Media listeners. As you know, because I already talked to Ezra Klein about this, our sister site, Vox, has a new show on Netflix. It is called Explained. Every episode is a 15-minute, give or take a couple minutes, deep dive into one important topic. This week is a great one. It's cryptocurrency. I've seen it, I love it, and I know you will like it too. It does a great job of answering the question, why are people betting on cryptocurrency? It explains what cryptocurrencies are, how they work, Understand their history. It's a very Voxy presentation. Of course, it is. It's from Vox. Um, it's narrated by Christian Slater, who's awesome as well. Because why not? Go find it on Netflix. You know how to use Netflix, but just in case, search for Vox or go straight to Netflix.com/explained. Back here with Kenaletta. How was that untargeted ad? Excellent. It was really excellent. good. I think I read that You're one, You're a too. model. Yeah, it was great. Um, I want to ask you a little bit more about Frenemies. I was surprised you pick a couple different characters in this book. One of the main characters is Michael Casson. Um, Who you wrote about some years ago um, and called The Godfather. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, Rico did. Um, no, you did. It was your, it was your byline. I actually maybe. quote you in the book. Well, I got I got to I got to I got to skim the book again. We I remember I, the piece that I remember we wrote that he didn't like was one about his role at CES where he was sort of the grand facilitator that's slash the one, tour that's guy. That's the one where you call him a godfather. That's Nellie Bowles. I worked I worked on that one, but I didn't it was my byline. But uh uh he was upset about it. We'll, we'll fact check it. Um what surprised me was you're doing a, a book about the the change that data has uh, causing in, in the ad business. And my, I think of Michael Casson as sort of an old world guy, um, not in a derogatory sense at all, but just he's a guy who's a facilitator. He's a guy who's a schmoozer. He's a guy who makes his money connecting other people in a very hand-to-hand tactile way. Right. Um, so why is he an important character in this book? Well, if you think about connector or, or another way to say that is power broker, yeah. if you look at his client list, 
Who does Michael Kasson represent? In, in the everyone, in, everyone. He all the New York Times, Washington. I mean, Washington Post, Fox Murdoch, Media. Fox, Wall Street Journal, Vox Media, Facebook, Google. They all pay him. They all. Some pay of them him. will tell and you clients. privately. We're not sure why we pay him. By the way, they will say that. Yeah. But they, but they pay him in part because he's a connector. And for instance, if you're— So but just, just to back up, MediaLink is, is a—what do we call it formally? It's a consulting agent? It's they're a, a consulting and, and a bank. And a, and, but, and, but they're hired by, by everyone in this ecosystem right. system um, to represent them. And if, you're, if you know that he represents the clients and you're an ad agency, you, you wonder, what is Michael Kasson whispering in the ear— of of your client, and will he support or oppose you becoming the ad agency for that client? If you're a client, the New York Times, Murdoch, et cetera, and you want ads, you want him, the facilitator or connector, to connect you to the various people who, who would, actually the clients, who will put ads on your platform. Is there something about this era that makes a Michael Cass impossible, or is there always a version of him in the media business for decades, and he just happened to be around when you were I don't. Th- I don't think there's been a version of him in the ad world uh, and marketing world for a period of time. Um, and if, if there are people like Shelley Palmer who do some of the things that he does, but he's a mom-pop operation. Michael Casson has scale. He, he has 100 and 50, 60 people working for him. So that that's the difference. But if you look in the political world, he's a power broker. Right. The way people in the political world have Right. We get years. that idea in, in politics. In media, it was a newish idea. And he is the reason, if you, again, if you're not following the media world that closely, probably weird that you're listening to this podcast. But the, the reason that the CES is now a media event, at least as much as is go look at a fancy TV event, that's Michael Casson. He has helped bring bring these groups of people together. You know, I go every year um, to meet people who I could probably see in New York in a 15-minute cab ride, 10-minute um, Uber ride, um, Cannes, uh, Lion, the, the Schmooze Fest in, in France in June. That's now a Michael Casson event, and he sort of has created these things more or less by himself. Yeah, he's, he's an extraordinary guy. I mean, when a client once said to him that, uh, Michael, I, why should I hire you? You, you represent everybody, and, and how do I know that you're going to represent my interests? He said, look, I'm a good kisser. If you want a good kisser, you want to hire me. And he, you know, he's, That's a very Michael Casson line. It's a very Casson-like line, and he's a funny guy. And you know, if you're writing a book, I'm not writing an essay for three people to yeah. read. I'm, I'm, you're looking for a narrative. Right. And Michael Casson and MediaLink, they're a link with all of these participants in, this, in the ad and marketing world. So he became a natural narrative through line for me. I find one of the frustrations about writing about ads and, and modern ads and digital ads and ad tech is there aren't many really, at least that we're, that we're aware of, that I'm aware of, really interesting characters in that world, or at least what we don't know. How, we haven't figured out how to, who they are and how to tell their story. A lot of them are engineers who work at Google and Facebook. Right. Um, do you feel like you've got insight into sort of the, the nuts and bolts and bits and bytes and zeros and ones of that world? Like who those people are that you should be paying attention to? Well, I mean, the, the characters I chose... Uh, to highlight in the book and tell their stories were were people who represent something beyond themselves. So 
when I wrote about Facebook, I chose Carolyn Everson, who's the head of yes. sales and advertising. Again, sort of a traditional role. She's the one who goes out to Pepsi or whoever and says, this is why you should spend money with us. But she's also the person who has to battle sometimes with the engineers who are zeros and ones. And she's saying this is a people business. Yep. And, and, and it's not just about algorithms and, and, so, and artificial intelligence. But it's also a way by, by doing that to, to talk to the engineers at Facebook and Google and and explore their logic. Google and Facebook are interesting, right? Because they're they're like you said, um, they're almost their entire revenue is is from the ad business. They don't think of themselves as media companies, but they clearly are. Um, and within the hierarchy of Google and Facebook, the people who sell ads are several rungs down from the engineer. They're engineering companies, product companies, and they sort of tolerate the people who actually bring the money in. But but one of the things that's happened, um, Facebook started with the slogan, you know, we connect everyone. Yeah. And that's no longer really true. What they're really about is connecting you to ads. And otherwise they have no income. And actually, they're parallel companies, Google and Facebook, in the sense it took each of them about five years to figure out how to generate. What's our revenue source? They didn't know. And Google first came to, in 2001, AdSense and AdWords, and they said, oh, my God, those ads on the right-hand side, it's great. And Larry Page, when I was doing my Google book, said to me that half the people who do a search click on the ads because they see the ads as informational, yep. not as advertising. But nevertheless, it is advertising. And same thing with Facebook. When Sheryl Sandberg came five years in, in 2008, she had to figure out a, a revenue model, and she figured right. out. They were playing around with ads, but they hadn't really gotten into it. And in fact, they had disdain for ads yes. initially. And they—it's the thing—they still do. That's both you know, Larry Page and Mark Zuckerberg are not excited about advertising. They're happy to hand it off to somebody else. It's the reason Larry Page isn't even running Google anymore, right? They sort of handed it off. Sundar, you take care of this stuff. But on the other hand, when they get in trouble with the advertisers, as happened with Cambridge Analytica, yep. et cetera. The engineers rush in, directed by their bosses, to fix this problem. This is embarrassing. This is hurtful. This threatens our business. Speaking of characters, speaking of moguls, um, said at the beginning of the interview, you, uh, I think of you as the guy who writes the definitive books about the big media moguls. We're at spring of 2018, and to me, the most interesting media mogul story is that all the media moguls are either leaving or trying to leave. Jeff Bukas wants to sell Time Warner. Can't, he's been walking out the door for a full year. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, empire builder, has basically said, um, I'm selling. He'll tell you otherwise, but he's really selling most of his empire. Um, the Sherry Redstone versus Les Moonves fight is about a bunch of different things, but in the end, they're fundamentally trying to figure out how to position those companies to be sold. Um, are you surprised to see all these characters trying to leave the stage? Well, you know, what, what they're trying to do is figure out... Um, Take Murdoch, for instance. Murdoch, it surprised me that he would sell a large part of his business. Not all of it, obviously. Yep. Um, but here he, he basically made a judgment that I don't know how we can compete with the Netflixes of this world or the deep pockets of the Googles and the Facebooks and the Amazons. And it's just going to kill us. And so we really have to get out of, out of that business. Jeff Bukas made the same judgment that, that I have to sell this content company because I don't have a distribution arm to do it. So, but AT&T does with DirecTV and the telephone. Maybe they can make it go. But they're all shitting in their pants for, because of the digital giants, Amazon, Facebook, Google, and 
and Netflix, who have this uh, such value, stock market value, they can buy anything. They can buy and anything. If, and, and by the way, and, the, the, and pay anything for right. for talent. And the media moguls who are leaving are not being replaced. By new medium, they're not selling to other media moguls for the most part, right? I mean, Murdoch wants to sell to Bob Iger, but Bob Iger wants to retire as well. Um, I mean, if you, it's a it's a pretty small list of people who are running big media companies who are acting as if they want to continue running big media companies. Well, I, I think that's right, but but think about it. I mean, Brian Roberts, if he gets in the game Comcast. against yep. uh, of Comcast, gets in the game against Disney, and Disney, I think, has the same interest. They see. Sky, for instance, as a real distribution platform, as they see the Indian uh, arm of, of Fox as a real distribution yep. platform. So, and they also see Hulu as a real distribution streaming platform to compete against Netflix. Right. So they they see a future. Right. I mean, again, again Iger, Iger's been trying to retire now for years, but he says he's going to leave in 2019. Yeah, Roberts, now, now we said he'll stay longer. If the deal goes through with Fox, he agreed to stay till 21, I You're think. right. He's going to keep kicking around. And Roberts is running a family business and, and is relatively young by media mogul standards. Everyone else is saying, I'm, I'm, I've been getting paid for a long time. I got really well paid. I'm, I'm going to leave. Well, interesting, though, if you take, take a look at Cherry Redstone and trying to put together Viacom and CBS, she basically believes that size or scale is the answer to compete in this world. But she doesn't really have a distribution platform. No, even if she combines it, we did this great map. You can go look at find on Recode.net that groups all the big media and distribution right. companies by, by market cap. And even if you combine Viacom and CBS, they're small players. They're going to get acquired by someone else. She's not – the plan – I mean, she wouldn't tell you this with the, on the record, but the plan is not to combine CBS and Viacom and then say her work is done. It's to find then someone else to buy the entire package. I don't know. Yeah? I'm not sure that that's really her game plan as opposed to a, a, a kind of a faith that if I combine these two content companies, like my father, Sumner Redstone has always yep. said, content is king. We'll have content. But here you have – the bundle being disrupted in cable, which is which Viacom is very much a part of. I, you know, I just think it may be a false god she's she's worshiping. And again, the, the other part that I find interesting is not only are the media moguls not being replaced by newer media moguls, the people they're selling to aren't in the media business. The media is a thing they do, or maybe it is, maybe it's actually the core of what they do, but they don't think of themselves that way. Mark Zuckerberg does not think of himself running a media company. Larry Page does not think he is. Uh, Randall Stevenson runs a, runs a telephone company and thinks that maybe media is a useful thing for him to own, but it's not what he wants to do. Um, so these, but these, it, these it maybe powerful that's as these, what they think they have to do. That I need content yeah. if I'm going to have direct TV and I'm going to have streaming over my telephone wires. That that maybe I have to be in that business, and and otherwise I'm a dumb pipe. Yeah, I I don't. I hate to say this as a media guy. I'd rather own pipe than than content right now. I think if you have that connection to the home. But his argument is that I have both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think he's actually buying Time Warner because it's something to do with his money rather than returning to shareholders. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's, it's still not, there. he's not saying now I'm a media company. He's saying that I'm a phone company that now has media assets. Um, and there aren't, there isn't a younger generation of moguls that we can see coming up, just sort of that. Are you wistful for that? It seems like we're, we're leaving the end of the mogul era. That's something that sort of defined your career for decades. Um, I, I don't feel wistful yeah. about it. I mean, it's, I mean, my view is that 
is that I, I visit planets. And, and after I've visited and met the natives and written about them, I'll find some other planet to write about. And if the natives and their planet disappears, I, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, some of them were nice people, but I'll go on. You're like Captain Kirk. I like, uh, that's, I, I, I like you visiting planets. Um, who, you gonna, who do you want to write about next? My th- rough thought, though I won't give serious thought to it till the fall, is to do a biography, which I haven't done yet, just to use a different muscle. I mean, I do long profiles for The New Yorker, yeah. but to write a whole book. And when I think about it, I, I, I think about, I don't want to do historical biography because I like to interview people and they're dead, I can't interview them. So, but I haven't... Do you I think you'd be a, a media person or do you think you'd go out of the comfort know. zone? I don't know. I literally don't know. Um, I mean, you know, your life takes different turns. I have a, a graduate degree in political science, and so I thought that's what I'd be doing. And and my first several books were not about media at all. Um, how did you How did you come to this beat? I had um, I had written the Three Blind Mice um, about tele- disruption of the television industry, which was totally reliant on advertising yep. back when I was writing about it. And Tina Brown, when she took over The New Yorker, my book comes out, and at a dinner with her, she says, uh, would you consider writing Annals of Entertainment for The New Yorker? She was just taking over The New Yorker. And I said, no. Um, I, I was thinking of a book. I was actually thinking of a book about Bobby Kennedy then. Um, and I said, but also you're thinking about it too narrowly. It's really Annals of Entertainment. Of, of not analysts of entertainment, but analysts of communication. Because at the time, Microsoft was buying into the studio business. Yeah. You know, publishers were doing CD-ROMs. I mean, everyone was looking to expand, and they were all expanding. You see these waves of content companies yeah. playing with distribution, distribution companies right. playing with content, then going their separate ways, com- coming back again. So as I thought about it, um, after saying no, I said, you know, this might be fun. So that's, that, that started. This was 92. I've written about the story you've written about. I haven't got to ask you directly, so I'm excited to ask you about Harvey Weinstein. Um, there are two really great Harvey Weinstein stories published up until last year when the Times of New Yorker got to it. David Carr did one in 2001. You did one in 2002. I wrote about this. Um, you were both trying to get at what we now is, know as Harvey Weinstein's sexual abusive, sexually abusive ways, right. but weren't able to publish what you thought to be true. Can, can you talk about chasing sure. after that story and what you got and what you didn't get? Um, I had, uh, I wrote a story about Harvey being a, a bully with people uh, and actually his bullying with women or sexual predation was a natural outgrowth. Of, that's the way he treated everyone, male or female. Um, and But I knew of some instances of his behavior, including some payoffs to silence, to get people to sign non-disclosure agreements. Uh, doing the making of Shakespeare in Love and and some others. So I had a catalog. I confronted him, um, and he basically said these were consensual affairs. If you publish it, you're going to ruin my marriage to Eve, then his first wife. And I have three little girls, I think he had, and then maybe, maybe no, three three daughters, I think it was. And And he started to cry. He stood up, actually, at first and clenched his fist. We were sitting, just the two of us, in a small conference room. And I thought we were going to get into a fist fight. And he, you've been reporting this for months and months. months. He knows I spent time with him, and, but I, uh, these questions I saved for that final interview about his sexual predation. And he knew they were coming. I would no, assume, not, no, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe he did. I don't know. But 
basically I confronted him with it. Um, and it was like a four-hour interview. It was finishing up. He knew his final. I had questions. He knew probably some yeah. aggressive questions I'd be asking. Anyway, when I stood up uh, face-to-face with him, thinking, again, he, was, he might take a swing at me. And actually, part of me was kind of hoping he would. And um, he started to cry. And that's when he said, Ken, you would destroy my marriage. It, these were consensual. you know." But. So then the question became... Do we in The New Yorker, it was all anonymous, I couldn't get a single woman or man to go on the record with their name. And you thought there were settlements, but you couldn't get your hands on those. No, one of the things I learned, because I went to the courts in England, France, and the U.S., is there are no court records. Because what Harvey would do, if you made an accusation to him about behavior, and I tracked down one of the women, it's now come out, Zelda Perkins, who was then in Guatemala. I tracked her down, she was his assistant. And she wouldn't talk. She had a non-disclosure agreement. And what he would do was he, he went to the person, he's, his lawyer went to the person and said, Mr. Weinstein will pay you a sum of money, but you must sign a non-disclosure agreement. And by the way, we keep the agreement. You don't get a copy. So it, it remained in the lawyer's office. So it, was a, it wasn't a public document. It was a private document. And he did that countless times. Anyway, we had a question in The New Yorker. Um, do we publish it with names? My next question was... How did you pay these agreements? Did it come from Disney, which was then your corporate parent? Did it come from Miramax, which was your company? Or was it personal? And if it, was, if it came from a company, someone was going to jail. Right. I had a great story. And, and he, he produced private checks. They were private checks. So you knew that he'd been making these payoffs. Yep. He showed you documentation off the record. Off he the showed, record, off the record, he showed me the the, the canceled checks. And then, do you go back and have a discussion? So with David Remnick running in New York. David was in the meeting, that final meeting with not the one where I confronted him, but the, the check meeting. And David said to me, Ken, you know, when I was at the Washington Post, we did an expose of Bob Packwood, Senator Bob Packwood. We had ten or eleven women on the record saying he sexually harassed and abused me. We have zero women. This is the New Yorker. And I agree with David. We didn't have the goods. We didn't, I couldn't get a woman. Couldn't write the story you wanted to write. That's right. And David, David Carr, who I talked to about it afterwards, we commiserated. He had the same problem. Right. And I'm going to, you might hear my computer whirring loudly here. This line in the New Yorker story, you know the line, I'm going to quote you here. So you don't reference any of this directly, but you do have this quote, and it stuck out like a sore thumb in the, in the story at the time. I noticed it. Lots of people in Hollywood noticed it. Right? This is the quote. Weinstein doesn't want to share the costs of the movie or trade half an interest in a Miramax film, semicolon. Instead, his partners, the studio head, said, feel, quote, raped, end quote, a word often invoked by those dealing with him. So the way I read that, and I talked to folks who agreed with me, said, this is Ken Oletta in The New Yorker saying, Harvey Weinstein is sexually assaulting people. We just can't say that. We say so. And that, that was your intent then. Absolutely. And, and David Remnick allowed you to do that. Oh, yeah. I know. D- David, David had the same passion I did to expose this guy. And, and it, took, you know, it took a decade before Ronan and the two reporters for the New York Times were able to do it. Ronan, when he came to interview me, I gave him my— This is Ronan Farrow. Ronan Farrow, I'm sorry. In, in last spring— he said, Ken... He's working at NBC at the time. M- MSNBC. Right. And he comes to me and he says, Ken, I have... 
can I get access to your at the, my papers and tapes are at New York Public Library, and I just donated them. And could I have access? I said on Harvey Weinstein. I said sure. So his access, he says, could I come and interview? I said you have to come out to Long Island because I'm writing a book and I'm out there um, in July. So he comes out, does a three-hour interview with me. He tells me in the course of that interview, as I remember, I have eight women, three of them on camera accusing Harvey of, and five of them off camera. So I had eight women, and I have the tape of the police tape of the Italian, Harvey grabbing the breast of the Italian model. I said, oh, my God, that's unbelievable. That's great. And I was so impressed with the interview he did and how careful he was and empathetic he was. So I said, what's the next step? He said, I take it to NBC the first week in August to see Noah Oppenheim, who's the president of NBC News. So I email Ronan the second week in August. I said, so how'd you do? Thinking this finally is I can't wait to see this. Was there a a little bit of you that said, oh, man. Oh, no, no, no. I wish I would have got this. No, no, I was thrilled. You're rooting for him. I was rooting for him. So he says they, they turned it down. I said, what? He said, yeah, they didn't want to do it. He said, but I can do, I can take it elsewhere, but I feel defeated. Why did he tell you they had turned it down? He, he just said that they didn't or think I had— Or what did he tell you they had I said? didn't have the goods, which is unbelievable when you think about eight women. Um, and I'm pretty sure my memory is correct on the eight and three on camera and five mm-hmm. uh, background and the, and the Italian model, the tape, uh, audio tape. So I called Remnick and I said— this guy's a real deal, and he's great. And Remnick says, have him call me Monday morning. And he took off from there. So that was your role in shepherding the story from NBC Yeah, and then and it was the all grown after that. And, so you don't, you, don't, you don't want a tiny bit of the Pulitzer he won for that story? I don't deserve it. No. What was your reaction? I mean, you again, you knew sort of what was going on with the Ronan Farrow story. I'm assuming at some point you learned about the Time story coming like the rest of us did. Well, actually, I kept on calling Ronan and Remnick. I said, I knew about the Time story. I said, guys, got to get this beat. And Remnick's attitude is, I'm not a newspaper. We want to get this right. It'll be fine. And then my, my friend Dean Baquet, the editor of the, um, we're fellow judges of the Livingston Journalism Award. So we talk from time to time and and he said and he was he calls me up he, he's trying to find out what I know about the New York and of course I'm not going to tell him anything and I just said there's room for everyone in this and the truth is when both stories came out there was it proved there was room the times was generous towards Ronan Ronan was generous towards them they did a terrific job Ronan and they both came out job. within what, what, a day within a week day. yeah within a week within of a each week. other um and they both have shared credit i mean in some ways I think just the amount of work they had to do to get that story. Although they, I guess they both got it within the last of a year, within 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 a year. There's something about the fact that they were able to get the story in 2017, where you and David, both very very good reporters, were unable to get it. And I went back at it in 2015 twice to get Harvey because I I thought this guy was a predator and a menace out there, and he had to be stopped. And so in 2015, when I read that Ashley Judd said that some Hollywood producer wanted massages and stuff on on his heavy back, you knew what you were talking about. I knew immediately it was that. But she wouldn't talk and go forward. And then when the Italian model came forward, I thought this was a great story. And I couldn't get the police tape. And then Cyrus Vance, the DA, decided not to prosecute. And I found that stuff about the Italian model that undermined her credibility. She had been been kept by a car dealer in, in Rome. Um, 
and he paid her uh, annual, and he paid her more if they had relationships. These are almost unbelievable stories. Did I miss it, or did you not write a backstory for this in the New Yorker in the last year? I did year? not write. Well, a story. Why not? I think it's fascinating. That's why we're talking about it right now. Yeah, I've talked about it, but I, I, I didn't. I don't know. All right. Well, thanks for sharing with me. My pleasure. And thanks for taking the time to talk about Frenemies, which you can buy. Do you care if they get the maybe the audio book? Right? No, it comes e-book? out. All of it comes out June fifth. But there's a, there's the ebook has bonus stuff in it. Uh, ebook has some additional material. Uh, Martin Sorrell being uh, fired, and some about about Mark Zuckerberg testifying before the Congress. All right, that's that's the version I'm going to suggest because I, I want the updated version. Whatever version you buy, go ahead and buy it. Ken, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Peter. Thanks again to Jessica Pressler and Ken Aletta for coming on the podcast. I like talking to smart people, and I think you guys like listening. So if you do, please tell a friend about this podcast. Thank you. As you might have noticed, um, while we're doing these interviews, we're also bringing you interviews from the Code Conference. We've already heard from James Murdoch, who runs 21st Century Fox. Coming up in the nearish future, my conversation with AT&T CEO Randall Stevenson a conversation with Kara Swisher, uh, with Spotify CEO Daniel Eck. I've got a great conversation with David Chang, who is my food idol. I did that one with Eater Editor-in-Chief Amanda Clute. That is coming up as well. They're all free. They're all for you. You're welcome. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to you so you can listen to Vox Media for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who does a lot of editing on these shows, more than he should And thanks to my producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. I will see you back very soon. Today's show was brought to you by IBM. Technology today has never been smarter, but smart only matters when you put it to good use. Together, we can build a smarter future for all of us. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash smart.